I was going to have that tattooed on my forehead, but I was afraid my hair would hide it. <laughs> Non-retention, said Flannery O'Connor, keeps my education from becoming burdensome. I hope you get it. <laughs> I don't retain much. Uh, I'm going to tell you some things I read about Flannery O'Connor, and then we're going to talk about some of the stories. I'm going to try to intersperse some of the stories among these things that I read. Um, someone asked her why she wrote. <laughs> she said, because I'm very good at it. <laughs> she died just two weeks before Jerry and I married in 1964. I'd never heard of her. A lot of people had heard of her. She went to the Iowa workshop and uh, was taught by uh, Robert Penn Warren. She was a friend of Robert Lowell. She was a uh, known by Alan Tate, by, I'm trying to think, I had some of James Dickey, uh, Thomas Merton found out about her, uh, Robert Fitzgerald, who translated the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those men were her, her good friends. She didn't meet Merton, but she read him, and he read her, and they were mutual, mutual, they were in a mutual admiration society. They loved each other. Um, uh, many uh, people enjoyed her stories because they're colorful, they're funny, they're shocking, uh, they're bizarre. Um, they talk about characters who aren't like me and um, miss the point. A lot of them missed the point of what she was trying to say. But in 1956, a woman named Betty wrote her a letter and said, I love your stories, but I think the New York uh, Times article misses the point. Aren't your stories about God? And she was so glad, <laughs> glad to hear that somebody had gotten it that she began a correspondence with Betty that lasted for several years. She even tried, she, she got Betty to become a member of the Catholic Church, but Betty finally left the Catholic Church uh, after a while, but they kept up corresponding during all that time. Um, here's what she said about her faith. I write the way I do because, not though, I am a Catholic. However, I am a Catholic peculiarly possessed of the modern consciousness. That thing Young describes as unhistorical, solitary, and guilty. She would have been a wonderful monk. I am a 13th century Catholic. She attended every morning mass every day until the end of her life when she was unable to leave her bed. She walked to church or she was driven to church. Somehow she got to mass every uh, day. She had no doubts about the Immaculate Conception, the Virgin Birth, an energetic devil that walked the world. <laughs> Salvation as, as a gift from God and uh, transubstantiation. One time she heard Mary McCarthy say uh, that communion is a wonderful symbol. And she said it, and Flannery said, if it's a symbol, I don't want anything to do with it. For her, it was the body and blood of Christ. Um, she loved uh, Thomas Aquinas. She read heavily in, in theology. People were astonished at her theological library when they would come to her, little, her house in Milledgeville and see her room. 
Uh, they were just shocked at all the books she had, lots and lots of theology. But one time she was reading, and I don't pronounce French well, Art and Scholasticism by Jacques Maritain, is that right? I don't know how to say his last name, who was teaching about St. Thomas at Princeton. And in chapter eight, he had said, Christian art, uh, oh, excuse me, do, do not make the absurd attempt to sever in yourself the artist and the Christian. While she was at the Iowa workshop writing her stories, even though her beliefs were in there somewhere, uh, she, didn't, she didn't feel maybe she should be doing that. Uh, and when, when she read that, it was like a thunderclap. I can use my, my Christianity, my Catholicism in what I am writing. I'm not going to sever it from my art. Um, she said uh, that belief in Christ is to some a matter of life and death has been a stumbling block for readers who prefer to think of it as a matter of no great consequence. So she felt that a lot of readers you know, would be turned off by what she had to say. And yet, uh, as Thomas Merton said, uh, she was not just talking about Southern people, Southern sinners, Southern uh, freaks. She even had discussions of freaks. Uh, she wasn't just talking about that. She was talking about the human soul the human psychology. She was exploring the inward nature of all human beings. And whether you're a Catholic or not, if you read, uh, or if you're a Christian or not, and you read uh, Flannery O'Connor, you see that she opens your eyes to something I even in you who are an atheist or whatever you, you happen to be. Um, trying to, oh. Well, let, let me go on to her work. Uh, what she was trying to do, she said, was talk about the operations of supernatural grace in the lives of natural men and women, infinitely various but so delicate that they have eluded some of the subtlest writers. Um, Thomas Merton said, I don't liken her to Hemingway or Sartre or Tennessee Williams or Faulkner. She's like... Sophocles. And the reason, the reason he said she's like Sophocles is Sophocles showed characters like Oedipus and the father of Antigone showed those characters a blinding light of truth through some nightmare experience. What happened what was revealed to Oedipus was overwhelming. I have killed my father, married my mother, had children by her, just as the prophet said I would. I've tried to avoid all this, and now I've brought a plague on my whole city. Ah! And he blinds himself. His wife kills herself. Uh, that's why Merton likened her to, to uh, Sophocles some blinding, overwhelming truth takes over. And uh, in that moment of truth, the person sees, I have been wrong about everything. And in Antigone, of course, when the father 
realizes he's brought about the death of his own daughter. It's, it's a blinding, awful truth. And that's what O'Connor is trying to do for us. She's trying to wake us up to what we take for granted around us all the time. Uh, and she, she wakes up her characters in startling and violent ways. Uh, I listed what someone said about her characters. I probably would change them a little bit. Her characters are bratty children, malcontents, incompetents, pious frauds, bewildered intellectuals, deformed cynics, rednecks, hucksters, racists, perverts, and murderers. <laughs> and you say, what have I got to do with that? <laughs> they are radically different from the people we know, but turn out somehow to be familiar, somehow to be connected to us. Believable characters vividly revealed in their own perception of their lives, in their heads, showing what all were thinking about everyone else. Others revealed by their words and their uh, responses. <clears throat> there is a moment in every great story, Flannery O'Connor said, in which the presence of grace can be felt as it waits to be accepted or rejected even though the reader may not recognize this at the moment. If you were in first service, you heard uh, Josh talk about their eyes being opened. There are all sorts of experiences like that in the Old Testament. They're, Adam and Eve's eyes are opened. Oh my goodness, what have we done? And if you read Paradise Lost, it's brought in guilt and shame and jealousy and remorse and every possible feeling that Adam and Eve would never have had to experience otherwise. But what have we done? And then he linked that with the story in, of uh, the walk to Emmaus where the couple say, oh, didn't our hearts burn within us? Oh, and they got it. Uh, it's like... Uh, the ladies who've been in ladies' class have heard me say all this. It's like uh, the brothers coming before Joseph and saying, oh, and recognize him. It's like um, Judah saying, oh, when he realizes that that woman has his credit card, <laughs> she'd been, uh, that his daughter-in-law was the one that he had impregnated. Uh, <clears throat> The Bible is full of that kind of oh, moment, and Flannery O'Connor uh, makes use of that throughout all of her stories with these strange characters. Uh, I'm going to ask some of you what your favorite stories are. I'm not necessarily going to, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what my favorite ones are and then talk a little bit about them. Do you have, how many of you have never read Flannery O'Connor? One, oh, several of you, okay. Ooh, ooh, you're in for a treat. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> uh, what's your favorite one? Has anybody got a favorite? The Life You Saved. The Life You Saved may be your own? Well, I may need to get aside with you and talk about that because I'm not sure that one I understand too well. <laughs> Actually, uh, I wrote a paper for Dr. Garner on that. Yeah. Got an A. Got a high mark. Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. I always figured that if I went down the hall at Lipscomb and asked the English teachers, they would say, Revelation. 
that Revelation was their favorite. Um, anybody? Uh huh. The turkey appears in the first six stories in her uh, complete stories because those were the ones that she submitted for her doctoral thesis. And so those first six, which include the, the turkey, um, are part of her doctoral thesis at uh, the Iowa workshop. And um, her, her teachers and all loved everything she wrote so much that they would nominate Robert Penn Warren and others nominated her for a Guggenheim Fellowship for every award they could think of. They kept, uh, she got some, she didn't get others, uh, but they kept her financially going <laughs> with the small gifts that she would get uh, uh, from those awards. Um, I thought somebody surely would say good country people or a good man is hard to find. The river. Or green. You like the river? Every, every preacher needs to read the river. Oh, oh. See how much damage. Oh. Go ahead. I didn't write it. I said I like The river is a painful story in which a little child. Uh, Somehow, he has awful parents who send him off with a woman whose name they don't even know. She doesn't even know the name of the child she's taking. And she tells them in her country twang, uh, I'm going to take him down to the river because we got a preacher coming down there and he's the best preacher you ever heard. That's kind of an Indiana version of... <laughs> <laughs> And the little boy goes with her, and, and he had heard the woman say that the preacher's name was Bevel. So she says, well, what is your name, little boy? And he says, Bevel. He's only, what, five, five, six years, four or five, something like that. He's not very old. Well, she does. She takes him and her children down to the river where the man is standing in the middle of the river, uh, talking about baptism, talking about the kingdom of God, saying, this water flows right to the kingdom of God. This is, you know, and pe some people up on the, on the shore are mocking the preacher, but the woman believes in it. And she says, preacher, can you heal his mother? And the preacher says, well, what's wrong with the mother? And the little boy says, she has a hangover. <laughs> his parents are, are disinterested in him there. They're the kind that DHS would snatch, you know, they would snatch him out if they knew about it. Uh, they're not interested in him. They pay no attention at all. But he goes down, and the preacher baptizes him. And when he comes up out of the water, he says to the little boy, now you count. You didn't count before then. Now you count. Well, the little boy goes home on the bus with the woman, and his parents are still in the 
you know, trying to recover from a party night and uh, mom's not paying any attention and they find in his coat a book of Bible stories that's very, very old that he stole from a woman's house. He's tucked them in his coat. And they, this thing's valuable. We can sell this thing. And they're, they're ignoring him and he has nothing to do. He goes from room to room with nothing to do. And finally, he takes the opportunity to steal some money from her purse gets on the bus, goes back to the neighborhood, goes straight down to the river, and gets in it, and floats away, dead. You know, it's, it's, you think, whoa, no, no, not the child. He was the only innocent person in the whole story, uh, floating, floating away, and nobody can rescue him. That, I'm glad preachers could use that as, you know, watch out what you say. <laughs> How do you, what do you see in that story that I missed? <laughs> so I, when I say I like it, it doesn't mean that I enjoyed it. I mean, oh, no. It was the most, of all her short stories, it's the most paralyzing. Bring urban and farming together. Yes. Kind of Catholic imagination of mystery, but with this revival and about this bad parenting, innocent child. It just... Everything. Uh, people asked her, why do you have bizarre characters? Why do you have horrible endings? Why do you have such violence? Uh, the, uh, it was going to be translated into <laughs> German, and the publisher said, some of those stories are just too violent for us. <laughs> Uh, but it's been, they've been translated everywhere. Well, anyway, I, I was going to tell you one or two just to kind of help you understand who the characters are. Her mother pops up in a lot of stories, although her mother did not think that was who those characters represented. <laughs> her mother, um, after lupus set in pretty badly and uh, Flannery O'Connor left New York and came home to live in Milledgeville in their old home, um, the mother ran with an iron fist a dairy farm, which she later converted to a uh, uh, Angus farm, I guess. She, she sold, sold the dairy farm and then bought beef cattle. Uh, but she ran it, and she had people who worked for her that she told what to do and so forth. She was a little, littler than I am, prim perfect little lady uh, and her sisters were like that they'd come from money in Atlanta and uh, all the friends their friends were like that they always had a, a, a lunch served every day a special dinner at lunch and friends would come in and uh, so in the stories you find in Greenleaf a woman who runs a dairy farm and has men who work for her who is uh, has an iron fist, who also has college kids living in her home, uh, and, a, and a fellow who's an insurance, her other son is a, an insurance salesman. They live in their home, they're, they're worthless, they do absolutely nothing worthwhile, uh, but make fun of their mother to her face. You know, I, I wouldn't milk a cow to save your soul from hell, mama. <laughs> and when she says, pass the butter, he says, one of them says, pass the butter to the martyr. 
you know, that, that's the way her sons are. Um, her, her farm worker, Mr. Greenleaf, has two sons, and I should read it in her words, whom the government made into what will eventually be society. Uh, they, they went to the war and they got wounded. You know, it's almost as though they did that on purpose. So the government would buy, build them houses, build, give them property, all of that. Um, and those boys are thriving. Uh, the mother is walking to see Mr. Greenleaf because a bull has escaped from, her, from his boy's farm and is eating up the hedge around her house. And as it eats, it gets uh, some of the shrubbery, like a crown, around uh, its horns. And she's sure it's going to ruin her herd. She's going to see Mr. Greenleaf, and out there in the woods is his fat wife down on her belly. She's praying over pieces of the newspaper that have the stories of awful things that have happened to people. She's saying, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, stab me in the heart, Jesus. In other words, wanting to feel compassion, wanting to feel sympathy for these people about whom she's read. She's off there by herself doing that. And uh, Mrs. May comes along and says, what are you doing? I thought you were hurt. Because she's yelling out, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And uh, the woman tells her, and she says, Jesus would want you to go home and wash your children's face and their clothes. If he were here, he would tell you that. She goes on to see Mr. Greenleaf. The upshot of it all is that the bull has gotten away, is off in the woods, and she's got Mr. Greenleaf in a car or truck and there, she, she thinks it'll be fun to make him shoot his son's bull. So that's her plan. And as it turns out, the bull, Mr. Greenleaf go, goes to look for the bull. The bull comes back and starts running toward Mrs. May, who's up against the side of the car. And um, in a flash, he has gored her through the heart. She has been stabbed through the heart. And when Mr. Greenleaf comes back, it looks as though Mrs. May is bent over the bull as though she's whispering something in his ear. It's sort of a, a, a moment of, <gasps> when she looks out at, with the horn in her heart, when she looks out at the vast fields around her, it's as though she's had an awakening but it's come too late for her to do anything about it. Uh, but that's a grim, horrible ending for a story. Uh, you think, do things like that happen? Well, I knew a veterinarian who got crushed by a horse she was trying to fix. You, you know things like that happen. Tom, Tom, uh, Tom's wife, who, Tom who died just, uh, Friday, his wife was mowing the grass and the lawnmower turned over on her last summer. Uh, horrible things happen that don't awaken us. 
Her idea was that these characters need to be awakened, but they are so hard-headed that it takes something shocking to wake them up. I'm going to tell you quickly about a good man is hard to find. Hey, uh, uh -huh. I read that story about the bull in high school, and I have never forgotten it. I couldn't remember the name of it. Yeah, that's Greenleaf. I had a boy who uh, came back to me the following year, and he said, i got to tell you something. I was standing out in the middle of our field on our farm, and I thought, oh, that was God, wasn't it? Said I just it just dawned on me it was God stabbing her in the heart, Jesus stabbing her in the heart, and I said, "Yeah, that's what was going on." Uh, a good man is hard to find is so full of symbols that you think, "How in the world did she miss what was going on?" We got another prim, tidy lady who lives with her son, and. Uh, he wants to take the family on a trip to Florida, and he does not want his mother to go, but she figures out how to go. And she's all dressed up so that if there's an accident, they will know she was a lady. <laughs> it reminded me of my grandmother in the early days of automobiles saying, be sure you have on new underwear <laughs> when you go on a trip in the car. Uh, that's one of those things that just sort of sticks in your head. Um, well, the grandmother gets in the car and she brings the cat. She wasn't supposed to bring the cat. Now, there have been people who have said, she was a good woman. And Flannery O'Connor responded rather abruptly, she was a witch and she even had a cat. <laughs> well, this woman looks a lot like her mother, Flannery's mother as well. <clears throat> but uh, they're riding along in the car on the way to Florida. They pa they're from Atlanta. They're, they pass Stone Mountain, you know, which has a monument to the ism, kind of has on the side the engravings of dead heroes and words about that. Just looks like a big tombstone. Uh, they pass a little uh, graveyard with five or six markers in it. They come to a barbecue place called Red Sammy's barbecue um, where there aren't pr particularly nice folks inside there's a monkey outside people from the north would read things like that and say barbecue place with a monkey outside and and dr garner would say you've never been in the south have you <laughs> uh, they pass, pass a place called tombsboro all these things uh, the grand, grandmother's having trouble with the two kids who are sitting on either, or she's sitting between them and they're fussing and growling. She thinks, I tell them a story. Kids, I know this story. And she's going to tell them this wonderful story. And uh, it's about a mansion. And in the mansion, uh, there is a hidden place where there's treasure. And nobody has ever found the treasure. In fact, uh, she she's saying to the, to the father, uh, it was down that road, that dirt road we just passed, I think. I've been there, it was down that road we just passed. She gets her son to turn around, he doesn't want to do it, and they go down the road. Oh, I didn't tell the 
the beginning, did I, where, why she wants to go a different direction. <laughs> Uh, she had wanted to go a different direction and not the way they were going because she had heard and read in the newspaper that a man called the misfit, a psycho psychopath, was loose. And she didn't want to go in the direction where they might encounter him. I forgot to tell you that, didn't I? Ooh. Well, anyway, they go down the dirt road and uh, all of a sudden it re it, she remembers that the dirt road was not in Georgia. It was in Tennessee. And she does something that scares the cat. The cat jumps out, gets on the back of, the, of her son's neck. He has a wreck. They turn the car over in a ditch. Uh, the, mother, the mother holding the baby has her arm broken. The children are okay. The grandmother's okay to everybody's disappointment. <laughs> the son is okay. They all get out and they're sitting uh, on, the, on the side of the ditch. Uh, at about that time, they see a black hearse-like car coming down the road. And when it gets down in front of them and stops, you know, they, are, are you having any trouble? Yeah, we've had a wreck here. Uh, they get out and uh, begin walking around looking at the family. Grandma says, I know you, you're the misfit. And her son says something that even Flannery O'Connor doesn't write. And the misfit says, you oughtn't to say things like that in front of your mother. Uh, well, the upshot of it is, you know, up to this point, this very point, when Flannery O'Connor would read her story out loud, people were laughing. They laughed at the way she talked. They laughed at her tricks trying to keep the kids quiet. They laughed that she brought the cat. They laughed about everything. It was just a hilarious story until this point when the room would always get deathly quiet. The misfit sends uh, the woman and the baby and the little girl off and they hear shots in the distance and sends the man and his son off. They hear shots in the distance. Uh, the two fellas with the misfit come back. They give the misfit the shirt that the son was wearing. And all this time, the mama is saying, you wouldn't kill a lady, would you? You, you wouldn't kill a Pray, pray, pray to Jesus. You wouldn't kill a lady, would you? And if you don't mind, I'm going to read this. Um, if I can get to it quickly and read what the misfit says. Uh, just a second here. I, I got it all marked. It's just that I marked three other stories, too. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus, the old lady cried. You got good blood. I know you wouldn't shoot a lady. She's just heard her whole family shot. But she's trying to save herself. I know you come from nice people. Pray, Jesus, you ought not to shoot a lady. I'll give you all the money I've got, lady. There never was a body that gave the undertaker a tip. There were two more pistol reports, and the grandmother raised her head like a parched turkey hen, crying for water, and called, Bailey boy, Bailey boy, as if her heart would break. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. 
He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness, he said, and his voice became almost a snarl. And now the good Christian lady says, maybe he didn't raise the dead. I mean, she denies the resurrection to save her life. Well, I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't, said the misfit. I wished I had been there. It ain't right I wasn't there because if I'd have been there, I would have known. If I had been there, I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. And his voice begins to crack. She sees that he has on her son's shirt and all of a sudden, bolt of lightning. She looks at him and he's, he's about to cry and she says, you're one of my babies, aren't you? And he draws back at that touch of humanity, can't stand that, and shoots her three, three times uh, and says she would have been a good woman if someone could have held a gun at her head all the time. We're not going to, I'm afraid we're not going to, I think we're not going to get to Revelation. Well, anyway, um, what, what the story shows as you look back is this woman who's my age, maybe, maybe, yeah, probably, a grandmother, had the opportunity at the site of all those burial places and reminders of tombstones and all the Red Sammy's barbecue pit, all of those things had the opportunity to realize life ends. Life is short. Act differently. It was as though she was being seen, given all these opportunities to change uh, along the way, and she didn't see him. She, just as we don't. <laughs> um, acts of violence sometimes change us. When, when the United States saw policemen in Birmingham shooting water hoses at children, the United States woke up. It took a violent act like that. It took the violence of the civil rights workers being murdered and buried somewhere, and then those men getting away with it. In Life magazine, the whole display, I used to have the picture of all those men sitting there cocky, knowing no jury would find them guilty. It took that kind of shock to change the way the U.S. looked uh, at the situation. It took the, you know, the four girls being blown up in the church to make people look. She, Flannery O'Connor was not showing the bizarre and the violent just to tell a story. It's all around us. The bizarre and the violent are around us and we've become inured to it. We take it for granted. We see the dead body of the little refugee boy on the beach and we say, I don't want any refugees. You know, we see atrocities uh, done. Well, it doesn't even have to be an atrocity. Uh, my daughter graduated with JJ. Um, oh, I've forgotten Jane. Huh? 
Cheryl, JJ, JJ shared uh, in JJ Cheryl's class, and JJ, the week before graduation, fell off Fall Creek Falls and was killed. And uh, the school kind of changed for a while. Kids were right, they forgot about graduation. They were writing notes to each other. They were praying with each other. They were trying to help each other. They talked about it in chapels. They had counselors come in. Everything changed for a while. And uh, I got to do the graduation speech and I said, the problem is that after a while, we begin to forget. The person who has the sudden, horrible, violent heart attack who's a changed person may, after six months, kind of forget that event, kind of forget that awful thing that happened. And at the end of Revelation, I'm supposed to stop right now, right? Uh -huh. At the end of Revelation, Miss Turpin has had oh, a vision. She has seen people on their way to heaven. All those people that she thought, you know, she had in her head how they were classified. Down at the bottom were the black folks. Above them were the white trash. Then were she and Claude <laughs> and because uh, they owned land. And then there were people. But then she'd get all mixed up because there were black people who had better houses and even had swimming pools. You know, she'd get all mixed up in her head. But she was given a vision in which people were walking to heaven and in the front of the line were all the people she had put on the bottom of the pile. And at the back of the line were people like Claude and Miss Turpin, marching as they should be in, in an orderly profession, uh, procession, singing on tune. But all their virtues were being stripped away. And she's, she has already yelled out, God, why am I a hog? I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that whole story. Well, anyway, um, she's had this great vision. And you wonder at the end of the story because she's headed home and it says, she walks into the darkening woods. And you're wondering, is she going to remember? Or is she going back into the oblivion she's been living in, where she's unaware of the way she treats African Americans, the way she looks at white trash, the way she sizes up people by the shoes they're wearing when she sees them in the physician's office? Is she going to change or is she not? And you have a feeling, no. <laughs> she had the vision. She had the opportunity. But probably she's going back the way she used to be. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't get to tell that story. That's a great That's my favorite. Well, if you had questions, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>